Barbara, I've been looking forward to talking with you. Um, I was researching uh, the dark side of empathy and I came across your videos and your book and I really loved your energy. Uh, you really bring, uh, you know, like a very positive, optimistic, can-do attitude. And you combine that with a very practical, level-headed engineering perspective. Um, and I think that makes you a very good candidate to ask uh, the hard questions um, in this particular instance of where does empathy go wrong? What is the downside of too much empathy? So I really enjoyed uh, your work on this. Before we dive into this whole world of pathological altruism, as you call it, can you give the audience a little bit of background on who you are from your days in the military to engineering to writing bestsellers? Uh, so <laughs> how, how did you uh, get interested in what you are today? What has that journey been for you? Well, I've always just, um, as questions arise, I followed them. Uh, so uh, for me, I, when I graduated from high school, I joined the army, um, and enlisted to go to the defense language Institute because I wanted to learn another language and I couldn't afford to go to college. So I learned, I just picked Russian more or less at random and, uh, ended up getting an in-service scholarship. And so I, uh, you know, went on, uh, became a captain, a regular army captain. And ultimately, um, when I was in my late twenties, I left the military and I wanted to begin something, studying something completely different, which was engineering. And so I, um, I spent my time sort of halfway between working out on Soviet trawlers because I found there was a great, good-paying job um, where they needed a Russian speaker. And so I um, I translated, worked up on the Bering Sea, and essentially lived in a microcosm of the Soviet Union. Um, I still remember at the time, you know, my captain coming up, do you know what your president said about us? He called us an evil empire. And, you know, and he's kind of, well, isn't that interesting? <laughs> but he, um, so I learned a lot about the different, very different perspectives of the different cultures. And, but ultimately, we on to get my doctorate in engineering and then became fascinated by, well, I've always been fascinated by psychology, but I tried to look at it and the findings of psychology from more or less an engineering perspective. In other words, what's the science basis of whatever you are deducing and whatever your theories are? And I found that there were some very interesting, what I felt were major flaws in, um, in some of the studies in psychology. For example, there was a, a lot of uh, there were thousands of studies of individuals um, about a concept called malignant narcissism, and yet none of those studies had any scientific research basis whatsoever, at least when I was beginning to work on the book uh, Evil Genes, which was an ironic title, um, which 
you can kind of tell from the subtitle, which was uh, why Rome fell, Hitler rose, Enron failed, and my sister stole my mother's boyfriend. And what that book was, was uh, a, an investigation into only the psychology, but what was coming out from neuroscience um, and the hard sciences about how brains work differently depending on both genetics and your environment. So that book gave me a lot of background in understanding sort of why malevolent people do what they do. Not psychopaths, but the kind of people who are like, you know, your boss who suddenly takes credit for all your work and makes sure you don't get any credit or or the friend who kind of stabs you in the back for things. These kinds of individuals, that's what I was really interested in. And, uh, but then that, so when I asked the question, uh, as I was speaking about this one day at, at a university, and they said, well, you know, we understand that Hitler was not a good guy, but what about all the Germans who followed him? I mean, they were not, um, you know, they're not all like him. And indeed, that, as I begin to look and to think about it and also reflect on my experience of working really in the Soviet Union, um, I, I begin to realize that a lot of people do what results in really bad actions as a consequence of their own desires to be doing good for people. And that really is at the heart of pathological altruism. And we can see it play out in many different cultures. Um, what is pathological altruism? Um, it's, in essence, it's if you take a step back and look at any given situation and, and look at someone's attempt to help and then look at the outcome of that attempt to help and see if it really long-term is helping. Um, if it isn't, then it's a very good candidate for being pathological altruism. So, um, so I, I done that for uh, several years, did an edited volume and a, uh, a nonfiction book, and also a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, basically covering the idea that we, that empathy is not this sort of, uh, unremitting good that is always going to be helpful for every situation. And in fact, if we're not aware of the fact that it's, it can be a double-edged sword, we can get ourselves into trouble. So that's sort of how I backed into uh, working in this area. That's amazing. That's quite a journey, uh, unexpected journey. But I think that your experience, you know, on the one hand, really experiencing the Soviet Union and that culture, but also that really practical engineering um, approach to how to ask these questions and how to research them. Because one of the things that you found was that uh, there wasn't a lot of research on pathological altruism. But I think that having those experiences early on kind of woke you up from this illusion that we're in where in Western culture, you know, one of the beautiful things of Western culture is that we value empathy. We value altruism. We 
have, you know, integrated this very Christian narrative of valorizing the victim, which which has led to a lot of good, right? That integration, that is one of the beautiful things of Western culture. What that's created is a blind spot. We don't see, uh, we, we're even afraid of criticizing uh, empathy um, or, you know, thinking where, where has empathy gone so far that even if we started out with good intentions, our consequences um, aren't uh, as we would like them to be. So I think that being able to see another culture um, sometimes can give us that perspective that we need. So in terms of pathological altruism, you lay out a few examples in your book and you start with this kind of battered wife syndrome, as you call it, or codependency. And I think that archetype of a woman who, on the one hand, you know, she puts everybody's needs uh, before her own. You know, she's super compassionate. She's super caring. Um, and she always seems to find herself in these situations where she's being abused. And how, on the one hand, you have all of this empathy and all of this, you know, caring for others, which we think is you know, purely good. But then you realize that on the other end of that, she's sucking everybody into her vortex of chaos. You know, and you really give uh, a very interesting story of how that dynamic occurs. So what is battered wife syndrome in terms of, you know, the terminology? Uh, and what have you found in terms of the inner workings, the inner psychological workings in these dynamics? Well, first, I think, it's helpful for us to back up a step and say um, and realize that, like when I first began working on pathological altruism, I thought, you know, I believe most cultures have pretty much the same definitions of of altruism. What what doing good for others should be, and uh, um, and that's really not true. I was so shocked at that. And so we have what we think is a, a proper definition of altruism here in the West, being empathetic and so forth. But every single culture believes that their definition of altruism is really the best and the only technical one. Um, and a lot of this devolves, I, I think, on what your perceptions of of the other are. In other words, um, if if the person um, that you're talking about that you're you're attempting to be altruistic with is someone who is within your culture and within your you know bailiwick, um, then that's where altruism applies. And you, you kind of cut off feelings of uh, of empathy when they're outside of your culture, um, and that, uh, or outside of your worldview. So it it's just it's quite interesting how differently people uh, kind of look at altruism and helping others. You know, uh, so. Um, Given that as a basis, so let's look at battered women and what they're, um, I mean, a lot of times, at least in 
Well, in many societies, women are in particular, you know, they're not the only ones, but uh, they're in particular kind of taught to be empathetic, caring, um, and, you know, that they, they need to be sort of understanding of the other person's uh, position and uh, you know, try and um, give a little bit in the give and take relationship. And this can work great if you're dealing with an individual who is reciprocating what you're feeling. But if you're, working, if you're dealing with someone who's a narcissist, they'll just take and take and take, you know, because um, altruist, uh, a, a narcissist is, is actually one of the most um, profoundly genetic of all personality traits, and some studies have shown. So it's it's something that's hardwired within a narcissist. And a profoundly narcissistic individual has built within themselves the most altruistic of all causes. That's themselves, you know? And so anything that you are doing that helps the narcissist is by definition by their definition, altruistic. So um, when we teach children um, be empathetic, be understanding, be caring, what is going to happen is you're going to be emphasizing these traits to the ones who will listen to you and the ones who are narcissists and um you know, really, they, they will turn you, tune you out. So you can't, they, they, it's like you're singing to a certain choir and you think you're reaching everybody, but you're absolutely not. Um, the ones you most need to reach are not listening to you. Instead, what you're doing is reinforcing over and over again to the ones who are really highly empathetic that they really need to be even more empathetic, that that's super important. And what this does is it, it gives a to individuals who are more narcissistic that they can twist the knife. So, for example, um, it's, it's important for teenagers to be able to think independently of the group. But it's really hard to think independently of the group if you've always been told it's important to empathize with others. Because it hurts even more when the group says, well, or like the leader of the group says, you know, it, you're not doing what I'm saying to do. And so I'm going to ostracize you. And it really hurts a lot. So empathy, teaching about the value of empathy, although good in some situations, also can lead uh, teenagers to overemphasizing the value of um, the group's opinions, to de-emphasize the importance of independent thinking. And in some sense, I think it's as David Wilson, the great evolutionary biologist has said, teaching only about the value of empathy is almost like decoying the cat. Oh, 
you know, it works fine if you're in the house. But once the cat gets out in the real world with all its real world challenges of people who will use and abuse you, um, if you're not aware that empathy can be problematic, you're in trouble. But then when it comes to um, women who have been raised to always think that, you know, they, they need to yes and to uh, to be helpful for others and so forth they can just um if they're overly empathetic to who are quite empathetic to begin with if they're raised in an environment that consistently reinforces that and they are listening carefully they're the ones that already hear the message and hear it even more deeply it can become increasingly problematic for them as, as they mature, as they marry someone perhaps who is, uh, who's abusive. Um, and that, that person will, you know, the woman might go, Oh, it's always me. It's, it's me. It's something I'm doing. And I, but I don't want to just say it's women because men can also have this same challenge. They can. They can marry a, a woman who is abusive, and or and then they believe uh, the abuser when the abuser is saying, "Oh, it's you, you problem," you know, and they're kind of gaslighting and so forth, and they play all the tricks that right. a gaslighting individual can play. Right, right. I think that you're bringing up a lot of really important points. So this idea of the individual and the other, right? This is the spectrum that we're looking at. How much are we able to look within, be in tune with our own opinions, our own feelings, our own thoughts, uh, our own wants and desires? And how are we able to balance that while also taking in, you know, input from others, being empathetic towards others, understanding what other people want and need? So there's this constant, you know, balancing of the self and the other. And genetically, people who are born with a propensity towards empathy, towards agreeableness, uh, they are very aware of social cues. They're very aware of emotional cues. And telling them over and over that they need to care for others, they need to be empathetic, they need to be agreeable and, you know, not to rock the boat. I think, you know, you're touching on something really important because it's these same uh, naturally agreeable people that take that message and really let it cement while others who are less agreeable, you know, that message doesn't really uh, register. But within a culture that says that empathy is the best thing, people who are naturally very high in empathy are not going to ever develop the assertiveness that they need in terms of negotiating with others over, you know, things uh, like a salary, but also over, you know, what we're ordering for dinner tonight. People who are raised in a way that only promotes empathy and agreeableness have a really hard time, you know, tuning into what they need and to put those boundaries up between them and others. You mentioned the neuroscience uh, showing how empathizing uh, on the one hand and systemizing on the other hand, that's a spectrum, right? And we can see different brain activities for people who are more prone to systemizing and are better with things. And on the other hand, people who are better at empathizing and are better with people and are better at registering facial expressions. And so we have that spectrum and we know 
what the extreme end of systemizing looks like, right? Hyper systemizers overlap with uh, people with autism, for instance. But we have never talked about what the extreme end of empathizing looks like. That might be a deficit in systemizing on the one hand, you know, in the same way that the high systemizers have a hard time empathizing. And it might be that we, as someone who has such high levels of empathy, they don't have boundaries between themselves and other people, right? There's their open membrane. Everything, everything that others are feeling is experienced as, as if it's themselves and they don't know how to disconnect and they don't know how to, um, you know, stand on their own two feet because of that. So what have you found in terms of that empathizing, systemizing uh, spectrum? and that extreme end of empathizing. The work of Simon Baron Cohen has given some insight into this idea of some people seem to be more on the systemizing or analytical spectrum. The bottom line is that the human brain is plastic. And we know that even people who are, who have been in really strongly abusive relationships, they can uh, become aware, and it's often very difficult to get out of an abusive relationship. Even if you do become really, you're aware of how toxic it is and how damaging it is for you. At the same time, it can be um, dangerous to try to leave, and you're very aware of that. So, uh, so I, I think the thing is, you're not lost. If you're on that empathizing, you know, you're, you're very much um, along that empathizing spectrum, uh, side of the spectrum. It, it's, you, you have cognition, you can use that to override, um, perhaps with some difficulty, what those limbic emotional feelings are. And, uh, and I think that's the hopeful aspect to really, um, to dwell on here is that you know there you can become aware of this and and I think even you, for me publishing about pathologies of altruism that thinking you're always doing good for people and that empathy is always a good thing for some people it's a revelation to hear that empathy is not necessarily always a good thing and that in fact. Um, if you, oh, terms, let's say that, oh, I'll give a real example from an individual I knew who, um, her brother was deeply, deeply depressed and she did everything to try to help him. She moved in with him. She, she really empathized. That is, she felt what he was feeling because she felt guilty if she was not feeling what she was. And as, an, as a result, she became severely depressed herself. And when she started to, uh, she took a class that I had taught in pathological altruism, and uh, she began to realize, wait a minute, no, I, I shouldn't be crawling down into the pit with my brother and feeling what he's feeling, I can sympathize with him. In other words, I can be intellectually aware of what he's going through, but I don't have to feel 
all the same things he's feeling, because if I do, I'm, I'm not helping him at all. And that, that cognitive realization helped her to, to frame her relationship with her brother to the, the aspect of, you know, I'll, I'll extend a hand out to you, but I'm not going to sit there in the pit with you and feel what you're feeling because it's not going to help you. And right. this brought her out of her depression. Uh, and sometimes you just can't help everybody. And you certainly can't help by, by just feeling the same thing that other people are feeling. And in fact, we can see the difference in the brain between someone who is feeling, truly feeling the same problematic emotions that another person is feeling versus them just being intellectually aware of what is going on. And unfortunately, we do not teach nurses, we do not teach teachers um, about the problems of over-empathizing with those which we, with, you know, whom we want to help. And it, I think if we did begin to teach about those kinds of things, it would solve some the problems that are experienced by nurses, for example, with burnout, by teachers with burnout. Um, and so I think it's, it would be important to begin teaching about that, that double-edged aspect of empathy. I could not agree more. I think that you, you really hit the nail on the head in terms of how people who, for the first time, heard that empathy isn't all good. And I think that separation, uh, being able to help somebody without completely becoming consumed by their emotional state, I think that's something that's really hard for people who are highly empathetic. And, you know, this is on average uh, more an affliction of women, but there are definitely men uh, who fall into this category as well. And it really is a revelation to hear that it's okay. Uh, it's, you're still a good person if you are able to disconnect a little bit from others' pain. Um, and oftentimes that makes you more effective, you know, in your life and for others as well. Um, and I think that there's this component of how much uh, self-interest is healthy, right? On the other end of where is empathy in balance, we have the question of where is self-interest uh, in balance? So what have you found in terms of helping people understand this balance, especially for people who oftentimes are completely disconnected from themselves because they're caring about everybody else all day. As far as, as finding the, the right balance point for a person, each individual kind of has to come to that conclusion. And sometimes it's a real life that forces you into like you may be in a, a problematic relationship, but you can, you're just insisting that it's not problematic. But if you've heard that actually there, there can be overemphasis on um, empathy and that empathy can actually be a problem at the right time, in other words, at the right time for you, it can come back to your mind and begin to play a role in what decisions might have. So I don't think there's any, it's impossible to have a hard and fast look out. 
um, when empathy is too much empathy, sometimes, um, I mean, yeah, there's very clear cases where you can overdo it. But I think most of us will give uh, an individual a at least a little bit of leeway because we've had things happen in our own lives where, um, you know, for example, a problem might arise uh, with us getting to work uh, and uh, it might, uh, you know, and so we empathize with a person who has problems getting to work and we empathize a little bit. But then if it happens too often, a person who's uh, who's kind of aware of this will set these boundaries, draw those limits. Um, it, on teams, it's it's often important. This is a funny thing that happens at universities is oftentimes um, we will teach about teamwork. Cooperative learning is a very big deal in most universities, for example, in schools of engineering and so forth. Um, and students will be asked to work on teams, but there's still, there's no, there's no way for students to set boundaries uh, very easily in student, uh, in other students who might take advantage of them. So, so what I mean is like the person who doesn't show up for meetings and so forth. But then at the very last minute, they say, oh, so can't you add my name to the report because blah, blah, blah. And um, the, I think a challenge is that a lot of times professors are not aware of a student game playing and, um, and how, um, you know, they, they'll often be like, oh, you need to empathize with the other person. They didn't understand that they needed your email address to be able to chew or, you know, something inane like that. And um, so, in other words, uh, our, our universities often aren't teaching about how to set boundaries for people who overstep and want to uh, take advantage of you in real life. It can be a, a little easier to, or for example, if you have a team and someone's not performing, it can be easier to fire that person or have consequences for that person. But at universities, sometimes people can skate through the system and get all the way through, and uh, um, and all that students learn is they really don't like cooperative. Uh, experiences with teams, uh, which is not a good thing for them to take away. Right. They're having the the opposite lesson. You know, I think that it's interesting that we see this in universities because in academia today, we do have this narrative and this culture that is, uh, you know, really Marxist, <laughs> to put it blankly, you know, uh, very woke, very uh, extreme socialism. And you have within that narrative the sanctifying the victim and you have this idea that empathy and almost self-sacrifice for others is the most important thing and that creates a dynamic where you know even if people are kind of skating through they can play nice to a certain extent and just get by they can kind of game that system and I think mm -hmm. that it is very problematic because in our culture, we don't talk about 
the healthy balance of looking out for ourselves and being productive members of society and helping the people around us. I heard you on your interview with the Ayn Rand Institute, and you had some really interesting things to say there. I think she's relevant for our discussion because Ayn Rand is someone who really looked at pathological altruism on a societal level, right? When an entire country, an entire culture is taken with this uh, kind of possessed by pathological altruism. And this doctrine is really policed, as she shows it in Atlas Shrugged, of political correctness and, you know, caring for the people and the, the good of the public and all of these beautiful sayings. But you see that behind the guise of compassion is very power-hungry individuals, uh, vulnerable narcissists, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, but she has a really, really great way of showing where pathological altruism, you know, where empathy goes too far. One of the things, one of the uh, criticisms of her work, which I think is, is warranted because I do think she had some blind spots, but that is her whole philosophy of self-interest. And I think that her only mistake here was really how she defined uh, the self and what self-interest is exactly. Uh, but I do think that we, you know, the world is in order when we live in a society where we are free to pursue our self-interest. And I think that that self-interest, the way I look at it, is, you know, self with a capital S. It's a self-actualization. It's a individuation, um, to use a Jungian term. But it's this ability to invest in ourself right now, in ourself in the future, that collection of selves, and also to be able to invest in our people, you know, to be able and to be free, to be altruistic towards those people that we love. And I think she doesn't talk about this enough. You know, she was kind of an avoidant personality. So her heroes and her characters are always very individualistic. But I think that if you integrate that sense of, uh, you know, chosen community within that mm -hmm. self-interest, if you, if you have that, I think she's really, really onto something. So tell, tell us a little bit about what you think of Ayn Rand, her history, and how her work has influenced your research on pathological altruism. It's quite interesting. You bring up so many um, wonderful ideas that these thoughts flash through, like <laughs> dozens of thoughts. And I'm like, oh, no, I've got to jot that down. When you get right down to it, um, Sometimes what I find is that those who follow Ayn Rand, um, and, and well, before we go into that even, if you look at Marxism as a doctrine, it is a really wonderful sounding doctrine. <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds great, and this is why I think a lot of young people are attracted to it. It's a powerful tool in that sense, absolutely. And what it is, is it's a tool for those who are narcissistic because it doesn't build into the structure of understanding um, human relations the idea that some people are narcissistic and, and narcissism isn't all bad. There's, there's some very good aspects and there are narcissists who are also really good people. But there can be sort of malignant narcissists who are very much into um, taking advantage of others. And that's not built into the structure of understanding the world through Marxism, through communism, 
and and so what happens is um those countries that that, that build societies that don't um take into account the fact that people really differ in what they're going to um you know try to pull out of other people and what they're going to do for other people some people are givers some people are takers many people are a combination but if the structure um doesn't take into account any of that and just assumes that everybody is equally you know benevolent um then you have a perfect structure for a narcissist, a malignant narcissist, to begin climbing their way up to the top. All they need to do is to portray themselves as actually doing good for other people. Uh, you know, you can't um, make an omelet without breaking a few eggs and so forth. So um, I think, you know, so... so with that as context, when you look at um, Iran's work, it's really, um, she was quite, um, she was really admirable for her ability to see through the facade of altruism that was behind um, a lot of the act that were in the Soviet Union and in communist countries. Uh, it's, it's not as if everybody who was on board with communism was, uh, you know, a malignant narcissism because a narcissist, because they worked at all. I met people who were true believers, absolutely good people, and they were treated to good by the system. It's just that they're... Um, their fact base of what the real world was like was deeply warped by the fact that communism can shape what kind of facts about the real world that you can receive. So, um, for example, when Mao was in China, um, people would escape from the communist um, you know, held regions, and they would try to warn people about what was actually happening. And because it was a, like a black hole of information, you didn't really know because the communists didn't allow that information to get out. And people just wouldn't believe them. It's like, nobody would be doing this kind of thing. It's crazy. Yeah, you know, they just would not believe that that was what was going on. And when you can control the news media, um, you can get people on board with your agenda who are really good people because they just don't have access to anything that falsifies what you are, you know, what you're promulgating. So, um, right. so Rand was amazing in her ability to kind of see through all of this and to, um, you know, to try to escape it, and then to fight against it. Um, but at the same time, she herself was, I mean, there's pretty substantial evidence. Uh, I wrote this in a, a post uh, on Nori blog many years ago, but there's substantive evidence that she was a narcissist of the first order, and um, this probably helped her to be able to be enough to stick to her convictions 
but it also meant that she um she um kind of believed herself overall uh, everything was going on so if she wanted to um you know have an affair with someone else then she could easily convince someone else that you know for like her husband that yeah to, to, to have affairs with other people and if she um uh and even when she had um was in the hospital and had um sort of you know the medication um led her to hallucinations and so forth and she insisted that it had to have been real because she saw it with her own eyes and no one could convince her anything anything different uh and so one of her her former best friends was putting it uh, you know there's no way to to relate how crazy she actually was uh you know in in many ways so i i think there's many brilliant writers who are also uh crazy in many ways uh so she's probably no different there but it's also it's important to be aware that um that when she's talking about things like altruism uh it was really her way or the highway and that wasn't something that she discussed and had, uh, you know, reflected the p- opinions of others. That was just how she felt it was, was the way it was. And it's problematic. I think that all great writers have a little crazy in them. The line between madness and genius, you know, is a very thin line. Uh, but I think it's important to know that she had this personality because a lot of people who follow her work, they kind of make her uh, to be a guru. And she's a human being and all human beings have faults. Uh, and she had many, many very good qualities. Um, and her books are brilliant. And I don't think it's an accident that they're so transformative uh, for people. They, they were for me. Uh, but I think it's important to know just that she was very, very individualistic. You know, when we say narcissism, we're basically saying she was on the extreme end of being aware of self, you know, and caring of self. And others weren't really able to come through. And I think that she was a very unique person. And that dialogue between, you know, the West and communism, she was able to see the writing on the wall. Uh, with that said, I mm-hmm. think that her philosophy of self-interest is incomplete in the way that she defined it. Although, if you look at it as as the self, as something that's a little bit more expansive than momentary gratification or the freedom to pursue every whim, but that this is a you know, more expansive throughout time kind of a self and the ability and the freedom to pursue your needs and to pursue your community without having that social policing of pathological altruism here, which basically what Marxism is able to do, it's able to manipulate you because it's hiding behind the guise of compassion, behind the guise of, you know, public good. And I think being able to see that is really important because a lot of our policies today are driven by this fundamental axiom that sits at the bottom of Marxism, where, you know, to be selfless is the best. It's the highest good. 
And this also uh, assumption that human nature is perfectible. And I think, you know, your comment on how Marxism doesn't take into account human nature, a personality variability, and the fact that there are people who are going to game the system. I think that at the same time, we're seeing this idea that if we only help uh, people, if we only, you know, open our borders, if we only give more funds, uh, then people aren't bad because they're bad. People are bad because they're poor, because they've been victimized. Uh, but if we just help them enough, then we'll finally reach the utopia. And I think, you know, this manifests in very different kind of political views, but that underlying assumption is there. Personally, next door, we have uh, Palestine, which is, uh, or we have Gaza, which is one of the most humanitarian aid funded places in the world. And the countries and the organizations that were pouring money into Gaza wanted the best for the Palestinian people. And that's an admirable cause. The fact that those funds then went to, you know, build tunnels bigger than the New York subway system tunnels for the Hamas terrorists and for their entire organization and for their ammunition. The fact that, you know, all of this humanitarian funding has been going into rockets that have been fired at Israel. And meanwhile, all of the leaders are sitting on, you know, billions of dollars of net worth, uh, you know, in Qatar, <laughs> in the hotels in Qatar. And that same altruism, all of the countries and all of the organizations that funded money into this place without having the, um, you know, the bravery <laughs> to look under the hood and to see where this money was going because this money had uh, certain uh, intentions and the consequences um, were, were very far uh, from those intentions. So I think that's just one example, but there are other areas in which we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot uh, because we're guided blindly by, uh, you know, empathy and doing good for others. So what other, you know, policy level, society level things have you seen um, where where this stuff can go go wrong? I think it's there's a question of who gets there first. So, in other words, what people learn first of all. You know, it, it's as the Jesuits used to say, uh, give me a child until the age of seven and I will show you, you know, the, the man. Yes. Um, so if, if people are taught in a certain way that a certain group is, that they're good, right? That that, that group is really good no matter what. Then what happens is no matter what, the evidence to the contrary, you will find a way to either ignore that evidence or um or say that evidence is is got a um you know it's it's not worth looking at, but it's not you know it's very, very difficult to get people to change their minds, and so I think this is 
part of what is going on in the, the battleground of um, universities in the U.S. is sort of who gets there first to shape young minds about uh, who the real victim is. And, um, and once you get shaped in a certain way, it's hard to step back and look objectively um, at evidence and so people just, you know, they're and they're not taught to do that. So uh, if someone gets there first and they're taught to empathize and so forth, you don't even think about um, looking at objective evidence. So, uh, you know, I think it starts from who's got big money that they're pouring into universities and you know, attempting to shape. Uh, opinions um and uh it's you know from a policy level that's that's important to be um front and center i think this reminds me of this idea of uh, the paradox of tolerance i think this is Karl popper's essay and he basically talks about the fact that if you have a tolerant society uh, it's very easy uh for people who are intolerant to game that system and to use the fact that the society is tolerant in order to promote their uh, intolerant ways. And I think that's one of the things that we've seen. And this is related, at the end of the day, that tolerance, that's related to empathy, to altruism, to that agreeableness personality trait. And when we have that as our culture, uh, and we don't know where to draw the line, and you know, I wonder where, whether people don't know where to draw the line between good and evil or whether they're not brave enough to do so. Because when you do so, when you say this is good and this is bad, you know, I agree with this and I don't agree with this. I don't stand for this. Uh, you're taking a stand and there might be some conflict by you saying what your actual opinion is. So that's a question uh, where, where that's motivated from i do think that um there's a critical mass of public opinion and when some people are really loud and really vociferous and really make it threatening if you disagree then um it's it's easier to get acquiescent empathetic people onto your side we didn't mention this component of people wanting to seem altruistic, right? We were talking about people who are inherently agreeable, inherently empathetic, but there is also this phenomenon of people who really want to seem like they're good people. We have this inherent quality in us where we want people to think that we're good, that we're moral, that we're empathetic, that we're helpful to others. And that desire to appear moral I think that can get us into trouble because a lot of times people do things or say things just motivated by how they think people will perceive them. And I think that is something that you see in universities as well. If there's a critical mass, there is a certain opinion going one way and that's considered the moral opinion, uh, then most people um, would be too scared to go against that and to damage their their identity as someone who's moral. I think one thing that's interesting is 
sometimes you get from universities this sort of attitude of we're we're a university, we're highly intellectual. There is no way that we would ever do something that wasn't morally proper. And uh, and they completely forget about the fact that, for example, in Nazi Germany, all the universities went along with what was going on in Nazi Germany. And sure, there were a few uh, dissenters and so forth, but by and large, they all fell into lockstep. So um, this this desire to just um, not only be liked, but be socially accepted um, is, uh, is a very, very powerful one. And, um, and a very interesting thing, you might wonder, how come narcissistic people sometimes seem to stick together? I mean, if they're mm-hmm. narcissists, you know, shouldn't it be like they're repelling one another somehow? Right. But research has shown that um, narcissistic individuals judge other people by how much those other people reflect their own values. So as long as they're not like showing each other or stabbing one another in the back, they'll actually, if they see someone who is also rather a, you know, say a malignant narcissist, they will support one another because they sort of see one another as as sharing the same fundamental values. So it's... What can happen in any organization is that once you get someone of this nature on the top, they can start ensuring that they are all through the system, and uh, and then problems can ensue. Jordan Peterson uh, did some research on left-wing authoritarianism, and one of the things that he found was that people who are uh, left-wing authoritarians usually are high in agreeableness. And that oftentimes they were also high in vulnerable narcissism. And these kinds of these two things really go together when you think of how people who on the one hand are highly agreeable, but on the other hand, have that desire for control, that authoritarianism, that this is the way to do things and we need to have the Marxist utopia. We need everyone to be taken care of. We need everything to be equal. And this is good and just. And those two things usually converge when you're talking about people who are left-wing authoritarianism, woke, uh, and the like. They're usually characterized by those uh, personality traits. I want to switch gears for a moment and to also talk a little bit about your work on how to learn. You have written extensively about the best strategies uh, for learning, uh, for retaining information, not just memorizing, but also understanding. And I think you have a really interesting way of going about this, of really explaining to us how we take in information and, you know, the different types of thinking uh, that we can engage in and how shifting uh, between them can really help us uh, learn more. So if you could give us a little uh, background, a little cheat sheet on how uh, these two styles of thinking work and how we should use them in order to learn better. Oh, okay. Well, just uh, to segue into this, um, I, I 
had written a lot about problematic individuals. And then I thought, I'm going to move into writing about education and learning because it's so much happier and things are so right. much, <laughs> people are so much nicer. And instead, what I found was, oh my gosh, there's actually a lot of pathological altruism, altruism in education and That's not to sure. mention malignant <laughs> narcissists. And some of the things that we have been told growing up about how you learn effectively um, are actually dead wrong and uh, and they can cripple our abilities to learn effectively. So for me, I trained originally as a linguist. I only began studying engineering in my late 20s. You know, I always thought I couldn't do math at all. So, um, but the fortunate thing was that I sort of skipped all of that um, early high school training about how to learn in math and science. And I had to kind of rediscover that on my own. And I found that insights for learning in uh, learning a language are actually invaluable in learning um, in math and science as well. And this is what neuroscience is now showing. So for example, uh, learning in math, we're often told off you know, practice and repetition is going to kill your creativity. And it's like, no, and actually, it's just like learning <laughs> language. Practice helps you get better. So um, I published an article on that in the New York Times. <laughs> I was shocked because um, I just said, the American students need more practice uh, in math. And you would have thought I just suggested burning down all high schools or all elementary schools in the country because people were like, oh, practice. That's how students grow to hate math. And it's like, oh, come oh, wow. on. The reality is a really good practice technique is using something called retrieval practice, which is just kind of bringing back to mind or remembering or memory. Um, whatever you're working with, like if you're working with multiplication tables, you know, memorize those multiplication tables, which teachers are now often taught. No, no, no. You can always just do it on a calculator. But that helps your brain pick up the patterns of the relationships between the numbers. You're not conscious of this, but it, it's invaluable. But let's say that you're learning how to how to um, learning a new algorithm as you're learning to code. Well, as you're walking from your, your bus or your car to work, try to retrieve that algorithm in your mind. Remember it. And there's, there's two foundationally different ways that the brain works, two modes. One is when we're focusing on an activity, and that involves generally kind of a... a uh, a tightly knit area of the brain that's working on that thing you're focusing on, whether it's reading that uses one area uh, or uh, doing mathematics is another uh, area. And then when you're mind wandering or daydreaming, that uses a very broad network throughout the brain. And when it, it, it turns out that when you get stuck on something, it's a very good idea to just uh, take a break or do something different. Um, it, it's it's really oh. nice to do something different that's very light intellectually. In other words, something like um, sleeping the floor, you're not really thinking, something that might be kind of boring. 
petals that 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 allows the the diffuse network to work in the background and start solving um, that problem that you're trying to understand. So what what is happening when you are retrieving things each time you're retrieving things is you are helping to to build the neural network involved in what you're learning, but you're also starting to connect it with other ideas and so forth. So um, there's so many aspects of learning how to learn well. It, it's right, hard to right. even a tackle even a little bit. Right. You mentioned, though, a few points. First of all, the fact that within education, uh, you have this motto of kids don't need to practice and you know, letting their creativity uh, flow. I think that he, there was another uh, place where a little bit more discipline and a little less compassion uh, towards uh, kids here. If you do practice, if you do sit through the more tedious aspects of learning, then a whole world opens up for you. And I really, really do agree with that. That resonates for me. You know, I've been reading uh, from a very young age, but the fact that I've been practicing reading constantly throughout my life has made it something that's uh, second nature and that I, I can really do, um, you know, the mechanics of it are effortless. So it opens up a lot more creativity. And I think that's what people oftentimes don't realize is if you do put in the work, if you do put in that uh, focused practice, of things that are a little bit more uh, repetitive even, that does open up uh, a whole world of creativity once you get those things um, down and kind of um, get those you know, channels in your brain uh, going. And I think that this other aspect of the diffuse mode, realizing that you can't learn, learn, learn constantly. You know, on the other hand, like practice is good, but you also need to step back from whatever you're doing, whether it's a math problem, whether it's a book, uh, whether you're writing something, you know, whatever the creative pursuit or whatever you're trying to learn, having um, those moments of decompressing, you said, as you said, doing something that's light intellectually, you know, even going for a walk or, you know, doing a house chore, but letting those connections almost unconsciously connect and I think that sometimes we don't realize how our brains work and how our minds work and the fact that certain things are conscious and effortful processing you know but certain things are just happening behind the scenes and we need to let those things happen as well because that's what brings the insights and I was wondering this is one of the questions that I wanted to ask you whether we can apply the same idea if, you know, we're talking about people who are not in school anymore and not necessarily learning, but they're working and they're trying to be creative in their work and they're trying to have insights as they go. Does this, you know, focused, diffuse uh, kind of a switching back and forth, does that also help us get more insights and get more creativity? Oh, absolutely. It, it works at really any stage of life. So or perhaps except infancy when you're kind of mostly right. in diffuse mode. Uh, it's sort of the way you are naturally. 
Uh, but for example, there's a powerful productivity technique called the Pomodoro technique. This is right. used by people in business, and it's really, it's just a very clever use of focus mode interspersed with diffuse mode. So it's 25 minutes of focused work with no, you know, no interruptions, no pop-ups and so forth uh, on your cell phone or whatever. And then five minutes of a nice break where you do nothing. And research shows that the best thing to do is do not pick up your cell phone during that five minutes after your focus mode bout of work. Um, it, you can, if you're at work, um, you know, go to the coffee, you know, get a little cup of coffee or tea or something like that. Uh, what, what that little break does is it helps you get a step back and to look at is what I'm doing actually the most effective use of my time? And is there a way I could be going at it better? And I'm not saying that everything you do should be divided into this 25 minute a five-minute block. Sometimes you're working on things, you get into the flow, it makes sense to go on for even um, a couple hours. But surprisingly often, it can be very helpful to take a little break and, and let that mind-wandering diffuse mode get a, uh, allow you to get a more objective, in some sense, look at what you're actually doing. I will call it a concert pianist who Actually, um, she uh, she used to always practice in two-hour blocks, so she never took a break. And then when she started breaking things up, so it was 25 minutes, then a little break, she felt she moved a lot faster. She could learn pieces more quickly. So it's, it's that way for learning it from being a high-level, world-class concert pianist, but it's also helpful for us um, even in business where we're, we're trying to think of, you know, well, how do I approach this, this flow chart that I'm designing? How am I looking at this spreadsheet uh, and so forth? Oh, wait a minute. No, there was this error that I did, but you don't realize it until you step back. You need that perspective. That perspective <laughs> helps you get insight and also just progress faster. And I do, <laughs> I do think that's a really important message because for people who are ambitious and they want to be productive and they want to learn, they want to succeed, knowing that you need to work with yourself. You need to give yourself a little bit of those decompression breaks throughout the day. And that's going to have an overall positive effect on your output. Uh, so, Because I think people feel that if they're just constantly with their head down, being on the computer all day or whatever it is, that can rob you of some flexibility of thought. That's true. I mean, if you if you focus, focus, focus all the time, there is good evidence that you can suppress the uh, the activities of that diffuse mode network, which is associated with our ability to be more creative. So it is important to just take those little breaks. And the the thing to the way to frame this is we have always thought. Only when we are focusing are we actually making progress in what we're working on or learning. But the, the truth is, these little breaks 
there's also progress being made behind the scenes. You're just not conscious of it. And it's, you know, it's a little bit like going uphill, going uphill, going uphill. You don't realize that when you go downhill and things are a lot easier, uh, you're also still making forward progress and it's okay. I'm going to definitely have my husband listen to this part because he was wondering, does this uh, only work for learning or does this work uh, for working as well? So I'll tell him that it's okay to take a, a break every now and again and that uh, he shouldn't look at his phone uh, during that time. Uh, exactly. So that's, uh, right. That <laughs> is critical too tip. because you're continuing to focus as soon as you, you pick it up and right. say, I'm just going to check it and see if I have messages. And then you do. And so then you start answering, you're focusing. And you right, know, right. so you're not really taking a break at it's also interesting, the aspect of the visual system, when you're looking at something that's close to you in a focused manner, that also changes brain activity uh, versus when you're looking out at the horizon that promotes the diffuse mode, uh, if you will. Huberman talks about this a little bit. Um, that's his background. Versus even when you close your eyes and you're more thinking internally without any right. input. And that is uh, when you really begin activating those that default mode network or the, the, the diffuse mode. Yes. I love Superman. He's great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's really, really good. So Barbara, where can people find your work in terms of your books, your writing, uh, videos? Where can people go to find you? So just go to barbaraoakley.com and uh, you'll find me there. And there's Lots of online courses, some of the world's most popular online. Well, Learning How to Learn, for example, is um, one of Coursera's most popular courses. Uh, right. The most popular MOOCs. Uh, one of them, yes. And then there's Uncommon Sense Teaching, which is all about how to teach well, based, based on how our brains work. And A Mind for Numbers, which is my first book about learning and it's how my own story about how I changed from being a complete math idiot to in my later 20s uh beginning uh work to become a professor a distinguished professor of engineering so so there's a lot of change beautiful. that can be made beautiful beautiful I do love your story and I think it's a really inspiring one of you know following your nose following your interests finding that you can start new careers at all sorts of ages and really following where your interests take you on using your abilities to fulfill that. So I think it's really inspiring to know that we can, you know, explore different areas and that we can learn, we can improve the way we learn. So I think it's a really important and positive message that you're putting out in the world. And on pathological altruism, I think that, you know, coming from you, someone who is clearly also uh, empathetic and so positive, but I think that you've really helped people see the downsides, which is really important if we want to live, uh, you know, good, happy, healthy lives. So thank you for everything that you've done and all of your work and everything you continue to do. And thanks for coming on the show. You know, well, thank you. And I, I really appreciate your efforts to help us all live free and fulfilling lives.